0: Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensics Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, you'll hear my conversation with Kevin Bewick, head of the Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group of Southern Africa a group that focuses on wildlife poaching research, intelligence gathering, and investigations. Now here's our conversation. Kevin, tell me a little bit about your organization. How was it founded? What does it do? And why is it named as it is, the Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group of Southern Africa?
1: Um, Laurel, basically how our group started was um, I managed a a private game reserve in Limpopo province of South Africa called Morongwe. And antelope poaching, bushweed poaching, was very, very rough in the area. And I started um, investigating and and following up um, leads on the people that were involved in this. And um, through that, through those actions, I started working with a security company called Ntombi Ranger Services run by Major Jack Cliff. Um, he was contracted to a private game reserve in Limpopo, Valkofonen, and he was in charge of anti-poaching, um, of, of running the anti-poaching units and all the operations in the area. And we got together and I started providing intelligence to Major Cliff's anti-poaching group. We, we worked very really closely, uh, collaborated um, on, on operations.
0: When was that?
1: Um, that was basically 2000 to 2003 and before the rhino this, this current rhino poaching epidemic had started and the warnings were evident then that a lot of the private rhino owners did not have security in place and um, in fact I would like to say that, that I had issued the warning but I didn't but Major fierce Major Jack fierce he issued the warnings back in 2000 that that rhino owners would have to watch out that the thing is their rhinos were going to be hit. So that was basically the formation of the group. It was a an area and um, community an area community intelligence network.
0: And what did you do?
1: And what we did was we worked within the communities surrounding um Valkyfon and Game Reserve principally, but we also covered areas from the the towns of Lepalali subazimbi right down to Nellstrom, and um, within that triangle um, in Numpurpo in province, um, and it's basically the western side of Numpurpo province, very close to Botswana, we, um, there was a number of private rhino, rhino owners within that area that we checked up the rhino on a regular basis and, and we collaborated by sharing information um, and intelligence.
0: And was it called the Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group at that point?
1: The group as such was a network and it wasn't called Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group at that stage. We operated for a number of years. And in 2009, when we we started to pick up that there was a definite spike, we then formulated the group Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group South Africa. That was the start of the group. And um, then in 2010, when it became apparent to us that The the people involved were organized crime syndicates, and they were operating across borders transnationally. We then decided to move across the borders and recruit sources um, in other, other Southern African countries such as Mozambique, Tanzania, Kenya, Swaziland, Botswana, Namibia, and Angola, and Zambia. And so that's basically how the group came to be formed.
0: What is your background?
1: I do have an anti poaching background, and I uh, previously was involved in intelligence with the South African police.
0: For people who have never been to South Africa, can you just explain the land system in South Africa and how wildlife is managed and where wildlife is? In South Africa, there's a lot of private game reserves as well as uh, community areas. So can you just explain a little bit about where wildlife is located and also how Limpopo province is a hotbed for poaching, especially of rhinos?
1: Yes, certainly. The thing is, we've got a a slightly different situation, and I don't like to be in intelligence. We never like to assume we like to have facts. Our wildlife in South Africa is not just governed by one organization. Um, it's governed by a, num- a, n- a number of organizations. In other words, you have Sandparks, and they, they carry the, they, they, they actually cover the various South African national parks. Obviously, their largest flagship is Kruger, Kruger National Park. They're one organization. They're a state organization. And then in KwaZulu-Natal, we have a semi-quasi-government, where it's not full government. And the thing is, they, that organization, KZN-Invela, in they cover various parks in the KZN province um, that, that fall under the ambit of KZN parks. Then in the Popo province, um, we, we have um, Northwest Parks Board, um, which is also semi-government. Um, initially it was private, and the thing is as well, they, they have certain parks. Now these are all very, very separate organizations. They do collaborate, they do work together as far as research is concerned, and ever since the rhino poaching epidemic started, they covered that area.
0: And what is Limpopo province like?
1: Limpopo province basically is a wildlife, basically a bush area. Um, about 25 to 30 years previously, there were large cattle farms, but there's always been a, a large amount of indigenous game that, that, that sort of roamed the area. And um, basically what happens was a lot of the cattle farms over the years Turned over, they were sold. Uh, they were sold to various people that bought large, large tracts of cattle farms, and they turned them into safari lodges. So, in fact, what happens was in South Africa, if you take the size of the Kruger Park, which is 2.1 million hectares in size, we virtually have another two Kruger Parks under wildlife under private ownership. So, in fact, a lot of the game in South Africa falls under private owners, and then, of course, then. Um, Basically, if you look at this land, it's split between some of the lodges that are like, tourist-only lodges and then some of the lodges that basically split it with tourism um, certain months of the year and then, of course, hunting the, the, the other months of the year. So there's, a, there's very large of, of tracts of land in Limpopo province, in Mpumalanga, in KZN, and then, of course, also in the Eastern Cape there's a huge um, industry of game launches and game farms products is.
0: you had said about the signs in the early 2000s 2003 four five that there were a lot of signs and you about the warning issued a warning that you saw this rhino poaching spike coming uh, what were the signs that you saw and what are you seeing now
1: okay um, the the first sign that we saw was um, the then Commission of African police who was later convicted of involvement in, um, in other words, he was he was connected in involvement of corruption and, and linked to organized crime syndicates. Um, he shut down specialist units within the South African police. And um, as any policeman would be aware, the moment you get a specialist unit that's specializing in a particular area, whether it be wildlife or whether it be rape or whether it be armed robbery, Those people tend to become highly effective and efficient because they specialize in a particular area and they they tend to be, they tend to do very, very well. And when the closure, the first warning was the closure of the Endangered Species Unit of South African Police, they had been very effective um, operating transnationally. They had taken down syndicates in Malawi, Zambia, Botswana. They had worked very closely with, law enforcement in those countries and they issued the warning that the thing is um, regional links must be kept up with police forces and exchange of information and unfortunately this did not happen um, pre-94, in other words after 94, after the new government on South Africa took power. Um, one of the other warnings was that we we weren't aware that syndicates had, had been operating before pre 94. They had been operating in Zambia, not to the extent that they now are. But what we did was there was a number of private reserves and private rhino owners who had populations of rhino on their farm, and they had no enforcement. They had no security. Um, you know, basically the rhino were walking around there. No one, no one had 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 basically ever poached them, Although, in saying that drone poaching is nothing new, it has been around for many years, but never at the, at the current level. So it's always been at very, very low levels that were, that were manageable.
0: What is making it today so extreme? It just seems that it just keeps increasing and increasing despite effort being put in to stop it. Um,
1: that idea in itself is actually a major, major question to answer as well. A lot of people... Has wanted to know what was the spot that started the, spir- the purify, if I can use that analogy. First of all, there's been a lot of corruption in Africa. Although the, the corruption in Africa has, has been around for many, many years, where it was very easy to. It was a known fact that you you could bribe a border official, you could bribe a policeman, you could you you could basically bribe anyone to to be able to pass through a port of entry. Um, the second thing is that. Um, there's been a definitely, you know, basically with the, the third colonization that, that we call it, um, of Chinese into Africa. China's moved into Africa big time. And um, wherever these Chinese construction projects happened within Africa, we actually tracked um, an increase of poaching in the area. Um, in a lot of areas, there were um, road gangs building a highway. that wasn't always elephants and rhino initially. It was basically bushmeat. but then the soon uh, the singers as well it, it soon increased and soon became elephants and rhinos, so I would definitely put that 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 was definitely a factor of the the involvement in Africa in major construction projects. wherever these projects happened there was a, there was an EP spike
0: and that's a significant part of the aid. Program. I mean, throughout Africa, is China is building a lot of roads, oil pipelines, what have you. In South Africa, where, or in Southern Africa more generally, is it usually roads that the Chinese are involved in, or is it all sorts of construction?
1: It's basically all types of construction. And one of the current problems that Africans are not very happy with is that China is offering to build a highway. For example, they built a highway from Maputo. Um, up the the Mozambique coast which is very good for Mozambique as far as business and commerce is concerned where the hassle comes in is that China when they build that road they are bringing in migrant labor migrant Chinese to work on these projects and I've personally been on the ground in Mozambique where I've spoken to locals and not one local of that country was employed um, on that project in other words Every single thing, from driving a truck of sand, from the cement mixer, from putting piles into the road to building bridges, every single worker there is basically Chinese. So the thing is, Mozambique scores a road, but no skills are imparted to the citizens of the country. Now this particular model that I'm speaking about in Mozambique um, has been repeated throughout Zambia, throughout Zimbabwe, throughout Namibia, throughout and Angola, Angola, um, all the way to Tanzania, Kenya. So the thing is, as well, you know, there's development going, where Chinese are, are building roads, they're building buildings, they're revamping buildings, they're building dams or working on dam projects, and in every single case, the whole construction crew is a migrant crew of Chinese that are that are working on the project, and so first of all, the the African countries are are, are, are getting vertical um, in the way of expertise, that exchange of expertise on these construction projects, and second of all, um, when these Chinese are in the in the particular areas, they are then looking around and they, they're chatting to the locals and they're looking for rhino horn, uh, they know how valuable it is, they're looking for elephant ivory, and um, pangolin as well. So the thing is as well, you know, the species are under dire threat wherever these construction um, companies are operating, or these construction crews are operating throughout Africa.
0: It's not just rhinos and elephants and... Um, and pangolins. A lot of people haven't heard about pangolins, and there was recently a big case that you, your organization, uncovered or worked to reveal, where not only ivory but a lot of pangolin scales were seized at, in Uganda.
1: Um, Lowell um, on the investigation side, um, I can't comment on some of the some of the situations. But the thing is, what happened was our organization. Um, in 2007, was already tracking major seizures in Southeast Asia of, of pangolins. We were, and we were worried about the 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 amount, the, the the actual tonnage of, of frozen pangolin that was actually being seized, um, in Southeast Asia. And the reason why we were concerned about that was that we, when we saw the the amounts that were that were seized, you know, some of the seizures were 15 tons, some of the seizures were 25 tons. Some of the seizures were five tons. Now, there's many different types of pangolin species, and they're not large species, so the thing is as well, you know, we were trying to calculate back from 15 tons, how many dead pangolin does does that equate to? And we were extremely concerned about this, and we started to issue warnings. Um, around about the same time, we had very really close communication with Risha Larson of saving rhinos, and we don't want to claim anything that's not ours, but she started up a pangolin group, and we were very, very thankful for that group that she started researching and writing articles on pangolin seizures to, to actually get the word out. Um, at the same token from our side, from an enforcement side, right from the beginning, we started to issue warnings to our Environmental Crime Investigation Unit at Sandparks, and also the Wildlife Unit of the Hawks, that we were tracking these seizures and the, the seizures were so frequent that we, and we were worried about the Chinese involvement that we knew that the, that the, the pangolin would soon be on the menu for the syndicates, that it, they, 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 they would soon start for that. So we started to get the word out that enforcement people must start to look for pangolin scales. We haven't found a case yet of frozen pangolin meat as has, as, a, as has happened in the East where they've had frozen cargoes of, of pangolin. But basically, as well, there's been a number of incidents where scales have been seized. And what we do is we supply intelligence to the African pangolin specialist group um, wherever we can on incident seizures in various countries.
0: Now, with pangolins, there's very there's three uses of pangolins in the, in the market. It's the scales, the meat, and then the leather, correct?
1: Yeah. Well, the hard thing is what happens is we haven't come across the leather. We have come across that there is big demand in the Far East for the meat. In Africa, we haven't come across any containers or any seizure yet of meat. Uh, It just has been the scales, and the scales are used pretty much the same as rhino horn in traditional Chinese medicine.
0: How many pangolins are there in Africa? Well, I don't
1: even think that the scientists, we... We, we work with a guide from the IUCN, African Specialist Pangolin Group, and I don't think they're even aware of it as well. Just to give an idea, um, they are so rarely seen that a, um, a leopard kill in, in Africa, if you come on a on a safari, is a fairly com- common occurrence compared to a pangolin sighting. To give you an idea, there are people that I know of that have worked in conservation in the Game Reserve for 15 years and never, ever sighted one pangolin. They are extremely rare, and no one really knows the numbers and the distribution, the exact distribution um, of them as well. And the thing is, as well, so we feel if the current trend continues, if the current demand continues, that, that some of the species will be long extinct before the rhino even will.
0: And then how many species of pangolins are there?
1: Lauren, I haven't even looked at that as well. Up the thing is, we went to the meetings. We, I am an ex-ranger, but did not specialize in my studies, did not I did not specialize in tangel species. I know that there are various species, that there are two species and stuff like that, but I wouldn't be able to comment on that as well. I know that there are a number of different species, but I can't even quite figure now and say there's five species or 10 species in Africa and there's four species in, in Southeast Asia, unfortunately. But we just concentrate on the animal as such. And the thing is, as I say, the seizures, one of the biggest problems is to try and identify from DNA um, which species was exactly poached and, and where.
0: It's amazing to me knowing how small pangolins are or can be and the scales and how you get up to even one ton, let alone 25 tons.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. Well, thing is what happened was um, the seizures of 25 tons in the Far East, they were not scales. They were actually pangolin meat, the whole the whole animal frozen. They were frozen pangolin meat. Um, the biggest seizure that we know of so far in Africa was, um, 11 sacks of pangolin scales were intercepted in Malawi. And what we were doing was we were sitting with, um, professors, um, of the African, uh, African specialist, IUCN African Specialist Pangolin Group, and even from those 11 bags, we were trying to calculate back how many pangolin were killed for those 11, for, for, for 11 bagfuls of scales.
0: And how many were there?
1: Um, the thing is, we weren't able to come to, to a definite answer as well. The thing is, what happened was, um, you know, the thing is, what we did was, we got involved in the in the intelligence side and the enforcement side. Once the seizure happened, we moved on to another case. We passed information over to members of the of the of the of the ICN group, and and we left it in their hands. They were trying to determine exactly which species was was actually poached and and how many of them. But the thing is that basically the final figure, we, we never ever received that final figure.
0: In your opinion, what are the top concerns in South Africa or in Southern Africa? Um, it sounds like rhino, elephant, and pangolin would be the top, but is that right?
1: Um, yeah, the thing is what happens was we've always been more concerned um, because the thing is because we're not just involved in rhino, a lot of people have come on the market and there's a lot of rhino groups that have formed because of the rhino. We are extremely concerned about our rhino. But the same organized crime syndicates that are involved in the rhino poaching are also involved in many other species. In other words, and we're extremely concerned about all all of the species. Um, In South Africa, we've got huge stocks of abalone, um, as I believe Canada has, and I believe um, um, to to a certain extent, that California also has abalone as well, and so does Australia. And um, our poaching is extremely bad. We have syndicates in South Africa... That only specialise in abalone, and we. The thing is, it, it, every single time that there's a seizure, we ourselves are actually quite surprised that it, that it even is abalone left. Um, so the thing is, as well, as I say, sort of, you know, we concentrate on abalone. We're extremely concerned about illegal logging. There's a huge amount of illegal logging going on throughout Africa. Um, we haven't tracked too much illegal logging happening within South Africa, but. It's definitely rife right in the the, the Caprivi um, south-western corner of Zambia, um, south-southeastern corner of Angola, all the hardwoods there, and Mozambique in the centre of Mozambique in the north of Mozambique. Um, there are basically many, many species that are under threat. Pangolin, illegal logging, rhino, obviously elephants extremely concerned, but the word has got out there now, and I think a lot of the, you know, there's, there's really encouraging incentives that are happening within Tanzania, within Kenya. I think today's announcement that the European Parliament um, voted on establishing a wildlife unit is extremely positive because while China is has been named as the main culprit and a lot of the unprocessed raw ivory is going there for carving, um, a lot of that ivory afterwards we know makes its way to eu countries where it's purchased and of course the usa
0: so how can one fight against syndicates because you keep hearing how organized networks are getting more and more involved in wildlife trafficking be it elephant rhino or abalone or anything um so how do you you know as a as an intelli- as someone who works in intelligence and law enforcement how do you fight against that how what are some of the steps well the
1: whole thing is what happens was um, I think the organization that's leading the fight and basically as well has come up with the correct answer is the wildlife section of Interpol and what what they've proposed um, within the last two years we actually we actually started proposing from 2010 but unfortunately, we were not able to get a lot of the rhino organizations and a lot of the elephant organizations to, to support that initiative. And that initiative um, that Interpol is, is calling, they, they call it a nest, is to ask all the wildlife NGOs if they have definite information on any environmental crime whatsoever, whether it's smuggling of illegal parrots, whether it's abalone, whether it's Tinder To actually feed that back to, to actually report that to the law enforcement agencies within their country, or otherwise, or otherwise to report it directly to the environmental section of Interpol. Um, By doing that, we can actually make a lot of these wildlife organisations, a lot of the rhino organisations, a lot of the elephant organisations. I mean, there are many. There are many based in the UK. If they Receiving information, and they can pass that over to Interpol or to the wildlife authorities in their country, um, that over there can actually assist greatly. Um, What we need was um, intelligence is very expensive. It costs a lot of money, and it's extremely expensive, and enforcement is expensive. So the thing is, the more organizations that we can have, the more eyes and ears that we can have on the ground, the more effective that we can be. The key to this is not some super sleuth Central Intelligence Agency guy sitting somewhere who's going to crack it. It's going to be the result of public tip-offs. And this is something that our group has has plugged again and again and again, trying to encourage the public to get on board to assist and pass information over to the law law enforcement authorities. It's, It's worked throughout the world. There's been many, many arrests just recently in wildlife in Kenya, in Tanzania, in Uganda. And a lot of those arrests were from tuples from the members of from from members of the public. So the public and and stroke wildlife organisations can assist greatly by passing information, detailed information, over to groups like ourselves or the wildlife enforcement in in their particular country.
0: So, what are your thoughts about law enforcement at the moment?
1: The, the situation in South Africa is extremely difficult. We do not have unlimited funds, as um, a lot of people internationally assume. And the the, the thin green line protecting the wildlife is a lot thinner than a lot of people imagine. Um, we are really, really backing as far as funding is concerned.
0: And why is it so thin? It seems that one issue is that There's um, so many different organizations working in the area, between the different government organizations and the different NGOs in the area.
1: Um, The thing is, as well, um, there there are just a massive amount of organizations growing on a daily basis, and all these organizations are collecting money. And um, we do know some organizations and where, where they go out and they purchase equipment and they arrive at an anti antipotion unit and they pass, their hand over the equipment. There are many like that as well. But there's many other organizations that are collecting worldwide for the runners. And we know for a fact that as thing as this the, the funds collected are not getting on they're not getting to the anti the units on the ground wherever they need it.
0: So what can people do to help?
1: I think the, the, the initial thing is to contact an organisation like um, Sandbox Honor Rangers. They extremely involved in fundraising um, for, um, for the rhino fight. And to contact them directly and, 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 make, and make a donation to them as well, because the thing is, they are on the front line. They are protecting the largest group of rhinos that we have left in this world, in the Kruger National Park. And um, they, they definitely, there's a dire need for funds for, for training, for re-equipping, for retraining. And um, a lot of the specialist equipment is extremely expensive. So I would say to anyone, rather than to, to donate to some organization which is unknown to you, and you cannot be certain of, the, of, of your funds getting to the, to, the, to the people on the ground, is to contact, in South Africa, Sandbox Only Rangers and, and make a donation to them.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kevin Bewick, head of the Anti-Poaching Intelligence Group of Southern Africa, a group that focuses on wildlife poaching research, intelligence gathering, and investigations. I'm Laurel Neme, and this has been The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. Thanks for listening.